0: Part One of The Light Princess From The Light Princess and Other Fairy Tales by George MacDonald This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clive Catterall The Light Princess and Other Fairy Tales by George MacDonald Part One CHAPTER One, WHAT? NO CHILDREN? Once upon a time—so long ago that I have quite forgotten the date—there lived a king and queen who had no children. And the king said to himself, All the queens of my acquaintance have children—some three, some seven, and some as many as twelve, and my queen has not one. I feel ill-used so he made up his mind to be cross with his wife about it. But she bore it all like a good, patient queen as she was. Then the king grew very cross indeed, but the queen pretended to take it all as a joke, and a very good one, too. "'Why don't you have any daughters, at least?' said he. "'I don't say sons. That might be too much to expect.' "'I'm sure, dear king, I'm very sorry,' said the queen. "'So you ought to be,' retorted the king. "'You're not going to make a virtue of that, surely?' But he was not an ill-tempered king, and in any matter of less moment would have let the queen have her own way with all his heart. This, however, was an affair of state. The queen smiled. "'You must have patience with a lady, you know, dear king,' said she. She was indeed a very nice queen, and heartily sorry that she could not oblige the king immediately. The king tried to have patience, but he succeeded very badly. It was more than he deserved, therefore, when, at last, the Queen gave him a daughter. As lovely a little princess as ever cried. CHAPTER 2 Won't I just— The day drew near when the infant must be christened. The King wrote all the invitations with his own hand. Of course, somebody was forgotten. Now, it does not generally matter if somebody is forgotten, and he must mind who. Unfortunately, the King forgot without intending to forget, and so the chance fell upon the Princess Makenwa, which was awkward, for the Princess was the King's own sister, and he ought not to have forgotten her. But she had made herself so disagreeable to the old King, their father, that he had forgotten her in making his will, And so it was no wonder that her brother forgot her in writing his invitations. But poor relations don't do anything to keep you in mind of them. Why don't they? The king could not see into the garret she lived in, could he? She was a sour, spiteful creature. The wrinkles of contempt crossed the wrinkles of peevishness, and made her face as full of wrinkles as a pat of butter. If ever a king could be justified in forgetting anybody, This King was justified in forgetting his sister, even at a christening. She looked very odd, too. Her forehead was as large as all the rest of her face, and projected over it like a precipice. When she was angry, her little eyes flashed blue. When she hated anybody, they shone yellow and green. What they looked like when she loved anybody, I don't know, for I never heard of her loving anybody but herself, and I do not think she could have managed that. If she had not somehow got used to herself. But what made it highly imprudent in the King to forget her was that she was awfully clever. In fact, she was a witch, and when she bewitched anybody he very soon had enough of it, for she beat all the wicked fairies in wickedness, and all the clever ones in cleverness. She despised all the modes we read in history in which offended fairies and witches have taken their avenges, and therefore after waiting and waiting in vain for an invitation, she made up her mind at last to go without one, and make the whole family miserable, like a princess as she was. So she put on her best gown, went to the palace, was kindly received by the happy monarch, who forgot that he had forgotten her, and took her place in the procession to the royal chapel. When they were all gathered about the font, she contrived to get next to it, and throw something into the water, after which she maintained a very respectful demeanour till the water was applied to the child's face. But at that moment she turned round in her place three times, and muttered the following words, loud enough for those beside her to hear. Light of spirit, by my charms, Light of body every part, Never weary human arms, Only crush thy parent's heart. They all thought she had lost her wits, and was repeating some foolish nursery rhyme. But a shudder went through the whole of them, notwithstanding. The baby, on the contrary, began to laugh and crow, while the nurse gave a start and a smothered cry, for she thought she was struck with paralysis. She could not feel the baby in her arms. But she clasped it tight, and said nothing. The mischief was done. CHAPTER Three, She Can't Be Ours. Her atrocious Aunt had deprived the child of all her gravity. If you ask me how this was effected, I answer, in the easiest way in the world. She had only to destroy gravitation. For the Princess was a philosopher, and knew all the ins and outs of the laws of gravitation, as well as the ins and outs of her bootlace. And being a witch as well, she could abrogate those laws in a moment or at least so clog their wheels and rust their bearings that they would not work at all. But we have more to do with what followed than how it was done. The first awkwardness that resulted from this unhappy privation was that the moment the nurse began to float the baby up and down, she flew from her arms towards the ceiling. Happily, the resistance of the air brought her ascending career to a close within a foot of it. There she remained horizontal as when she left the nurse's arms, kicking and laughing amazingly. The nurse, in a terror, flew to the bell and begged the footman, who answered it, to bring up the house-steps directly. Trembling in every limb, she climbed upon the steps, and had to stand upon the very top to reach up, before she could catch the floating tail of the baby's long clothes. When the strange fact came to be known, there was a terrible commotion in the palace. The occasion of its discovery by the King was naturally a repetition of the nurse's experience. Astonished that he felt no weight when the child was lain in his arms, he began to wave her up and not down, for she slowly ascended to the ceiling as before, and there remained, floating in perfect comfort and satisfaction, as was testified by her peals of tiny laughter. The King stood staring up in speechless amazement and trembled so that his beard shook like grass in the wind. At last, turning to the Queen, who was just as horror-struck as himself, he said, gasping, staring, and stammering,—'She can't be ours, Queen!' Now the Queen was much cleverer than the King, and had begun to suspect that this effect defective came by cause. "'I am sure she is ours,' answered she. But we ought to have taken better care of her at the christening. People who were never invited ought not to have been present." "'Oh, ho!' said the King, tapping his forehead with his forefinger. "'I have it all. I have found her out. Don't you see it, Queen? Princess M'Kemnoir has bewitched her.' "'That's just what I say,' answered the Queen. "'Oh, I beg your pardon, my love. I did not hear you. John, bring the steps I get on my throne with.' For he was a little King with a great throne, like many other kings. The throne steps were brought, and set upon the dining-table, and John got upon the top of them, but he could not reach the little princess, who lay like a baby laughter-cloud in the air, exploding continuously. "'Take the tongs, John,' said His Majesty, and getting up on the table, he handed them to him. John could reach the baby now, and the little princess was handed down by the tongs." CHAPTER Four. Where is she?" One fine summer day, a month after these her first adventures, during which time she had been very carefully watched, the Princess was lying on the bed in the Queen's own chamber, fast asleep. One of the windows was open, for it was noon, the day so sultry that the little girl was wrapped in nothing less ethereal than slumber itself. The Queen came into the room and not observing that the baby was on the bed, opened another window. A frolicsome fairy wind which had been watching for a chance of mischief rushed in at the one window, and taking its way over the bed where the child was lying, caught her up, and rolling and floating her along like a piece of flue or a dandelion seed, carried her with it through the opposite window and away. The Queen went downstairs, quite ignorant of the loss she had herself occasioned. When the nurse returned, she supposed that Her Majesty had carried her off, and, dreading a scolding, delayed making inquiry about her. But hearing nothing, she grew uneasy, and went at length to the Queen's boudoir, where she found Her Majesty. "Uh, "'Please, Your Majesty, shall I take the baby?' said she. "'Where is she?' asked the Queen. "'Please forgive me. I know it was wrong.' "'What do you mean?' said the Queen, looking grave. "'Oh, don't frighten me, Your Majesty!' exclaimed the nurse, clasping her hands. The Queen saw that something was amiss, and fell down in a faint. The nurse rushed about the palace, screaming, "'My baby! my baby!' Everyone ran to the Queen's room, but the Queen could give no orders. They soon found out, however, that the Princess was missing, and in a moment the palace was like a beehive in the garden, and in one minute more— the queen was brought to herself by a great shout and a clapping of hands. They had found the princess fast asleep under a rose-bush, to which the elvish little wind-puff had carried her, finishing its mischief by shaking a shower of red rose-leaves all over the little white sleeper. Startled by the noise the servants made, she woke, and, furious with glee, scattered the rose-leaves in all directions like a shower of spray in the sunset. She was watched more carefully after this, no doubt yet it would be endless to relate all the odd incidents resulting from this peculiarity of the young princess but there was never a baby in a house not to say a palace that kept the household in such constant good-humor at least below stairs if it was not easy for her nurses to hold her at least she made neither their arms nor their hearts ache and she was so nice to play at ball with there was positively no danger of letting her fall They might throw her down, or knock her down, or push her down, but couldn't let her down. It is true, they might let her fly into the fire or the coal-hole, or through the window, but none of these accidents had happened as yet. If you heard peals of laughter resounding from some unknown region, you might be sure of the cause. Going down into the kitchen, or into the room, you would find Jane and Thomas and Robert and Susan, all and some, playing at ball with the little princess. She was the ball herself, and did not enjoy it the less for that. Away she went, flying from one to another, screeching with laughter. And the servants loved the ball itself better even than the game. But they had to take some care how they threw her, for if she received an upward direction, she would never come down again without being fetched. CHAPTER five: WHAT IS TO BE DONE? But above stairs it was different. One day, for instance, after breakfast, the king went into his counting-house and counted out his money. The operation gave him no pleasure. "Mm, To think, he said to himself, that every one of these gold sovereigns weighs a quarter of an ounce, and my real live flesh-and-blood princess weighs nothing at all. And he hated his gold sovereigns, as they lay with a broad smile of self-satisfaction all over their yellow faces. The queen was in the parlour, eating bread and honey, but at the second mouthful she burst out crying and could not swallow it. The king heard her sobbing. Glad of anybody, but especially of his queen, to quarrel with, he clashed his gold sovereigns into his money-box, clapped his crown on his head, and rushed into the parlour. "'What is all this about?' exclaimed he. "'What are you crying for, queen?' "'I can't eat it,' said the queen, looking ruefully at the honey-pot. "'No wonder,' retorted the King. "'You've just eaten your breakfast. Two turkey eggs and three anchovies.' "'Oh, that's not it,' sobbed Her Majesty. "'It's my child, my child.' "'Well, what's the matter with your child? She's neither up the chimney nor down the drawwell. Just hear her laughing.' Yet the King could not help a sigh, which he tried to turn into a cough, saying, <laughs> "'It's not a good thing to be light-hearted, I'm sure, whether she be ours or not.' "'It is a bad thing to be light-headed,' answered the Queen, looking with prophetic soul far into the future. "'Tis a good thing to be light-handed,' said the King. "'Tis a bad thing to be light-fingered,' answered the Queen. "'Tis a good thing to be light-footed,' said the King. "'Tis a bad thing,' began the Queen, but the King interrupted her. "'In fact,' said he, with the tone of one who concludes an argument in which he has had only imaginary opponents, and in which, therefore, he has come off triumphant, In fact, it is a good thing altogether to be light-bodied. "'But it is a bad thing altogether to be light-minded,' retorted the Queen, who was beginning to lose her temper. This last answer quite discomfited His Majesty, who turned on his heel and betook himself to his counting-house again. But he was not half-way towards it when the voice of his Queen overtook him. "'And it's a bad thing to be light-haired!' screamed she, determined to have more last words now that her spirit was roused. The queen's hair was black as night, but the king's had been, and his daughter's was, golden as morning. But it was not this reflection on his hair that arrested him. It was the double use of the word light, for the king hated all witticisms, and punning especially. And besides, he could not tell whether the queen meant light-haired or light-aired, for why might she not aspirate her vows when she was exasperated herself? he turned upon his other heel and rejoined her. She looked angry still, because she knew that she was guilty, or, what was much the same, knew that he thought her so. "'My dear Queen,' said he, "'duplicity of any sort is exceedingly objectionable between married people of any rank, not to say kings and queens. And the most objectionable form duplicity can assume is that of punning.' "'There,' said the Queen, I never made a jest, but I broke it in the making. I am the most unfortunate woman in the world." She looked so rueful that the King took her in his arms, and they sat down to consult. "'Can you bear this?' said the King. "'No, I can't,' said the Queen. "'Well, what's to be done?' said the King. "'I'm sure I don't know,' said the Queen. "'But might you not try an apology?' "'To my old sister, I suppose you mean,' said the King. "'Yes,' said the Queen. "'Well, I don't mind,' said the King. So he went the next morning to the house of the Princess, and, making a very humble apology, begged her to undo the spell. But the Princess declared, with a grave face, that she knew nothing at all about it. Her eyes, however, shone pink, which was a sign that she was happy. She advised the King and Queen to have patience, and mend their ways. The King returned disconsolate. The Queen tried to comfort him. We will wait till she is older. She may then be able to suggest something herself. She will know at least how she feels, and explain things to us. But what if she should marry? exclaimed the King, in sudden consternation at the idea. Well, what of that? rejoined the Queen. Just think, if she were to have children, in the course of a hundred years, the air might be as full of floating children as of gossamers in autumn. That's no business of ours, replied the Queen. Besides, by that time they will have learned to take care of themselves." A sigh was the King's only answer. He would have consulted the court physicians, but he was afraid they would try experiments upon her. CHAPTER six she laughs too much. Meantime, notwithstanding awkward occurrences and griefs that she brought upon her parents, the little princess laughed and grew not fat, but plump and tall. She reached the age of seventeen without having fallen into any worse scrape than a chimney, by rescuing her from which a little bird-nesting urchin got fame and a black face nor, thoughtless as she was, had she committed anything worse than laughter at everybody and everything that came in her way. When she was told, for the sake of experiment, that General Clanrenfort was cut to pieces with all his troops, she laughed. When she heard that the enemy was on his way to besiege her papa's capital, she laughed hugely. But when she was told that the city would certainly be abandoned to the mercy of the enemy's soldiery, why, then she laughed immoderately she never could be brought to see the serious side of anything. When her mother cried, she said, "'What queer faces Mamma makes?' And she squeezes water out of her cheeks, funny Mamma. And when her papa stormed at her, she laughed, and danced around and round him, clapping her hands and crying, "'Do it again, papa, do it again. It's such fun, dear funny papa!' And if he tried to catch her, she glided from him in an instant, not in the least afraid of him but thinking it part of the game not to be caught. With one push of her foot she would be floating in the air above his head, or she would go dancing backwards and forwards and sideways, like a great butterfly. It happened several times, when her father and mother were holding a consultation about her in private, that they were interrupted by vainly repressed outbursts of laughter over their heads, and looking up with indignation saw her floating at full length in the air above them whence she regarded them with a most comical appreciation of the position. One day an awkward accident happened. The Princess had come out upon the lawn with one of her attendants, who held her by the hand. Spying her father at the other end of the lawn, she snatched her hand from the maid's, and sped across to him. Now when she wanted to run alone, her custom was to catch up a stone in each hand, so that she might come down again after a bound. Whatever she wore as part of her attire had no effect in this way. Even gold, when it thus became, as it were, a part of herself, lost all its weight for the time. But whatever she only held in her hands retained its downward tendency. On this occasion she could see nothing to catch up but a huge toad that was walking across the lawn, as if he had a hundred years to do it in. Not knowing what disgust meant for this was one of her peculiarities. She snatched up the toad, and bounded away. She had almost reached her father, and he was holding out his arms to receive her, and take from her lips the kiss which hovered on them like a butterfly on a rosebud, when a puff of wind blew her aside into the arms of a young page who had just been receiving a message from His Majesty. Now, it was no great peculiarity in the Princess that, once she was set going, it always cost her time and trouble to check herself. On this occasion there was no time. She must kiss, and she kissed the page. She did not mind it much, for she had no shyness in her composition, and she knew besides that she could not help it. So she only laughed like a musical-box. The poor page fared the worst, for the Princess, trying to correct the unfortunate tendency of the kiss, put out her hands to keep her off the page, so that along with a kiss he received on the other cheek, a slap with a huge black toad which he poked right into his eye. He tried to laugh, too, but the attempt resulted in such an odd contortion of countenance as showed that there was no danger of his pluming himself on the kiss. As for the King, his dignity was greatly hurt, and he did not speak to the page for a whole month. I may here remark that it was very amusing to see her run if her mode of progression could properly be called running. For first she would make a bound, then, having alighted, she would run a few steps and make another bound. Sometimes she would fancy she had reached the ground before she actually had, and her feet would go backwards and forwards, running upon nothing at all, like those of a chicken on its back. Then she would laugh like the very spirit of fun, only In her laugh, there was something missing. What it was, I find myself unable to describe. I think it was a certain tone, depending on the possibility of sorrow, morbidezza, perhaps. She never smiled. End of Part 1 of The Light Princess